Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what is the future of hell? So we're getting a little further out there into speculative territory today. We don't mean this entirely literally. Uh, we mean this a little bit figuratively. Well, we'll see. In the sense that we're not talking about theological Christian hell, but we are talking about the possibility, uh, if there is a very long or indefinite life, of tremendous suffering, potentially eternal suffering. So a very real meaning of hell could be instantiated um, for real. I don't agree in the concept of theological hell. Uh, I assume most of our listeners don't. But a technologically enabled hell is a scary and awful, but potentially possible scenario in the future. And actually, maybe a way to get at this is to kind of talk about lifespans first, because we've touched upon that. You know, Ted and I, in our longevity episode, came out pretty strongly in favor of the idea that if we can, we should extend human lifespans. And many people would disagree with that. Uh, A lot of people have various counters to the notion of living longer uh, they raise various concerns, such as, you know, they might get bored, or we might have overpopulation problems, uh, things of that nature, all of which Ted and I tend to disagree with. But I think if there's any one downside to defeating death that I can think of, it's that you lose one really important role that death does fill, which is it's an escape hatch, right? Because Yes, it's a last-ditch escape hatch from um, the worst kinds of suffering. Right. So you always know, no matter how awful things can get, it can't go on forever. Yes. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm totally against death. But that is like the one thing that death kind of does is it gives a certainty in the sense that like, you know, you can, there's always an ultimate way out. Now, if you take that away, if you have a future where either we're taking people's biological bodies and we're repairing them, sort of using the Aubrey de Grey sense model of, you know, constantly, you know, sweeping away all the debris and damage that accumulates in cells to keep you constantly new and living as long as possible, whether we're talking about that type of life extension. Right. Or we're talking about a simulated person, right, who's been scanned in or built from scratch inside a computer and is now uh, instantiated in that uh, computing substrate. Right. Both of those create the possibility, at least, that someone could be alive indefinitely And then that, unfortunately, also raises the possibility that they could be in pain indefinitely, which probably means you have a torturer. I mean, I think there's various ways you might get to this kind of outcome, but if someone wanted to torture you indefinitely in one of these scenarios, it would be theoretically possible. Right. You would assume that normal persons in a world such as the ones we're imagining would usually have control over their own uh, ability to die so, like, if you found yourself marooned on a desert island or a distant planet or something with no hope of rescue, you could uh, just flick the switch off and stop preparing yourselves and die, right? Right, if you're a simulation... Or if you're a simulation, could you could kill your own... Delete yourself ...process, or, yeah. right. But it's also possible to imagine that you could be, against your will, kept alive while somebody or something... Uh, causes you pain which is a very disturbing thought (laughs) yes which which is also why it's kind of compelling even though this is very speculative very far off i think it's such sort of an awful scenario to to conceive of that i think it it demands at least a little bit of attention and it's been it's been sometimes dramatized in fiction 
like one example I thought of is a book by uh, Ted Chiang called The Life Cycle of Software Objects, uh, in which these software AI beings are at times tortured just by sadistic humans that, that take pleasure in that. Another uh, example is there's a book that I actually haven't read by Ian M. Banks called Surface Detail that seems to deal a lot with this concept of a virtual hell. Right. And, yeah, I've uh, got to read that book. I've been I recommended it several times now. Yeah, I was actually in researching for this podcast and looking at it, I was like, oh, that sounds actually really interesting because like, the, the politics of, you know, once a virtual hell is possible, it seems like society wants to ban that or prevent that from ever being the case, you would hope. Uh, and I, it seems like the book deals with that debate and that argument at least a little bit. Another person who talks about at least the idea of virtual torture, if not necessarily an indefinite uh, state of that is Robin Hansen when he talks a lot about emulated minds. Right, right. And in his writing, he gets to one of the most interesting use cases for violence against a simulated being. Right. I don't know if you want to talk about that now or we can mo- come back to no, that. No, let's but- talk about that because I think since we're raising such an awful scenario... Right, and it's it fair is, to ask, sir, why would you do yeah, it, Yeah, right? why would yeah. this ever happen? I think we need to talk about the motivations for it, right? Yeah, so, so the best motivation that I've seen somebody write about is in the Robin Hansen writing about uh, emulated brains, he suggests that it's a security concern and that you might torture a copy of an AI person in order to learn their secrets. And this is something that I find very compelling and scary, um, which is that uh, if you were to copy... Uh, me and make a copy Ted and lock him in a torture chamber and torture him indefinitely until he told you his secrets, that Ted would spill the beans, I'm quite certain. I mean, this Ted is pretty stubborn and will lie to you and will do anything possible to just you know uh to well hold on a second you're 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 making out that the the teds are different if it's a true copy it's the the result will be the same the result's going to be different though because that ted a knows he can be in there forever which this ted knows he can't be in there right you're talking about like definition you're talking about meat ted meat ted right here i'm i'm not saying that there's not an amount of torture that's going to make me talk i'm sure there is but whatever it is it's a lot or or whatever it's relatively a lot compared to the ted who knows he can be locked in there forever and also uh who can experience much greater pain without say losing right so if you realize you're simulated then the equation is a little bit different right so the first thing that interrogator is going to do is tell him listen you're not the real ted you're going to get to end as soon as you tell me what you need to know but you're going to experience eternal horrible pain just like this you know until you do and uh, that, you know, I have no doubt that that Ted makes a quick rational decision to spill the beans immediately and can hopefully get turned off, right? Right. Um, so that seems like a huge security problem for uh, the entire world of, of simulated people. And uh, you would imagine that it would actually not be all that difficult to copy software beings, you know? That may not be something that they can easily protect against. <laughs> Well, right. I mean, the hard challenge is, of course, getting people to be software in the first place, which is, uh, you know, a major landmark in society that that whole Robin Hansen book deals with. But like kind of once you cross that first threshold, then you immediately have to deal with this problem. And I think him raising it, it makes a lot of sense. Like if you wanted information that you couldn't get that somebody wasn't voluntarily giving to you, if you had a way to copy them. I mean, you could copy them many, many times, potentially, right? And run different, horrible... Try different ways to get that information. Yeah. (laughs) You wouldn't even... I mean, if you were somebody who didn't want to use torture as your first resort, you could also just probably just fool the copies or at least attempt that first. And then when that didn't work, you know... Right. Well, Hansen talks about how they'd have robust 
checks in place to try to keep them from being fooled. But of course, yeah, if you can simulate a whole environment, then you can just um, fool them in much the way that uh, Inception fools them when they're in the dream and they think they're in their own dream, but they're exactly. in the dream. It'd be very much the same deal. Um, and another, well, going back to the issue of like, why would somebody be motivated to, to, to torture somebody else in this way? Yeah. I, mean, I think maybe an interesting way to, is just to just talk about the idea of hell as a motivator in general, because obviously we don't have real hells, at least you and I don't believe there are, although there are people, plenty of people that do believe well, in a no real hell. There's no proof we don't have them, but there's also no proof we have them. Right. And I mean, let's just start with just ad- agreeing that the idea of eternal torture is the worst vision that man has ever conceived of. I mean, what, what could be worse than, than eternal physical mental pain? And so like that, this is a extremely persuasive idea. And that's, this is why I think a lot of religions use it because it's like, what could be a better argument than if you don't do X, you get eternal torture. So I think that the reason that somebody might be motivated to use this in the future might be because of its just incredible persuasive power uh, as a tool. And that concerns me because that provides some justification for why, you know, despite the interests of a civilized society, you might actually have this going on in the future. Right. Yeah. You could imagine a future tough on crime politician, uh, you know, proposing a law that murderers ought to be sentenced to a purgatorial sentence of, you know, unending suffering for X amount of time. Or whatever the highest crime in the land is. I mean, maybe it's, you know... Well, maybe it's not murder at that time, but I assume murder will still be a big deal. Sure. But, um, you know, ir- irrecoverable uh, data corruption murder, you know, where they don't just kill you, they scatter all your backups, you know. Or even worse is, like, treason is going, you know, is... <laughs> treason, <laughs> because yeah. Because that has a political, like, right. do what I say or face the horrible consequences right. component to it. Right. But, like, yeah, I mean, I think... That is such a huge looming threat that you you could definitely get people to fall in line. But then, of course, it's also a tremendous waste of resources, you would think, which I hope is an argument against this ever really becoming a widespread phenomenon is that the fact that why would you... I mean, in the case that you were talking about with information, that's not really eternal torture because you're going to do it until the thing talks. No, it, only the threat of eternal torture is important to it. You're right. Right. It's, it's fundamentally different because, of course, they want the information in a time frame. So, um, in reality, they're just going to torture until they get the information and then it, the resource argument takes over that you're making. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you could imagine it being resource friendly enough for some being to potentially cause some some kind of pain uh for quite a long time it's just it does seem like you'll always be able to find a better use for that resource right uh it depends what i guess what the utility of the uh of the intelligence in question is trying to maximize right yeah so i mean yeah who's making these decisions again you know you hope that beings of the future whether they're human or not uh would be morally evolved enough to not use this say as a punishment at all but uh i don't think we can make that assumption yeah i don't think you can necessarily make that (laughs) assumption um and the other thing that you can think about with this is uh we're talking about intentional um torture but there's also the possibility for less than fully intentional uh eternal pain like this is something you and I have right. talked about. Uh, I think the pop culture example is like on Futurama, 
where all the famous people who've had their heads cryogenically frozen or whatever, and, you know, they wake up to find that their head's being used as a soccer ball, right, or something like this. I haven't seen that one, but, yeah, that's I, that's I, funny. I feel like that's, um, you know, that's like a little bit of a visceral, maybe not entirely plausible version of this, but the idea that um, it, this future is very complex and hard to see, and if you're doing something like, say, cryogenically froze, freezing your body or um, doing the equivalent by saving yourself in a computer and then, you know, um, deadheading, as Cory Doctorow would say, into the future uh, on that hard drive, um, and then starting up later, uh, the world might have changed, the power structures might have changed, you might find yourself the toy of a child or a curious robot, or you might find yourself in a, in a world that's somehow torturous to you. Right, so this is where um, your descendants find some use for you that's not, you know, pleasing to you psychologically. Yeah. Like so this could be right. uh the I like this concept um of ancestor simulations even or like or like you know maybe they're they're bringing you back uh either from, you know, being frozen in a physical sense or they're actually bringing you back, you know, from a backup file or whatever it right. is. Or some people even think you can like deduce persons from principles. I don't know if that's really possible, but that's right. something that people have discussed. But they're bringing you back, say, for research purposes. Essentially, And yeah. maybe they're, they're researching the worst period in your life, right? right and right. replaying it over and over again. And that's functionally hell. But they're not trying to torture you. They're, maybe they're trying to learn something. Maybe there's some greater reason there. But I mean... Right. But if you have subjective experience, which m maybe you do, maybe you don't, we don't really know, uh, that could still be a subjective experience of hell as you like, yeah, relive the moment of your death or something while they try to figure out how it happened, or that's just one example. Maybe a way know. to think about that is if you had a modern-day historian that had, you know, the option to sort of recreate virtually, I don't know, let's say the Thirty Years' War and observe it from multiple angles, uh, I mean, that would be right. the greatest historical resource for that time ever, Right. but yet they'd be... If it was like a sufficiently detailed simulation, they'd be subjecting these simulated right, these beings over and whatever, over again, right? To like horrific deaths, yeah, yeah, of, yeah, dysentery and being uh, cut open on the battlefield and torn apart and stuff. Yeah, so, that's interesting. I think you know that may call into question the ethical boundaries of of research in the future. You know how detailed is your simulation do are you causing pain to your you know simulated structures within the right within the simulation might become criteria on whether or not you can do something well i mean i think one way or another we're going to have to deal with this issue we've kind of touched on this before but like you know whether it's a it doesn't even have to be a full-blown simulation i mean you could be or it doesn't have to be a human level, right? We talked before about like if sure. you're if you're simulating animals or what appear to be animals or appear to behave like animals, like you know, starting with you know these very very small you know simple organisms like sea elegans or something like that, um, but maybe you know wor working your way up to like a lobster or something. You know, at that point, this becomes a concern for like PETA at least. You know, if not for right. all humans. I mean, like the ethical concerns. Fortunately enough, I think are going to rear their head pretty quickly as we start to head down this path. To People where, for the ethical treatment of simulated animals. Yeah, so at, at the point that we're dealing with full-on simulated wars, historical wars, you know, hopefully we've worked through this as a society and have some kind of framework in place. Of course, who knows what that framework would be. Right. I can just imagine the PETSA protesters now dressing up as robotic bunnies or whatever. <laughs> That's weird. But I, <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, and 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 it's not just animals too. I mean, if you're doing stuff, I mean, there are going to be people who maybe like rush to the defense of purely artificial life forms that have no basis in biology because they might believe that they're conscious at a certain point. Right, and that's going to be hard to prove at least until the beings themselves start claiming to be conscious. <laughs> right. But yeah, I think you're right. There will be people. I mean, there are people now who want to give dolphins rights, so I think it's reasonable to assume there'll be people who want to give artificial life forms rights. And maybe they should be granted rights, by the way. Um, depends on well, I think if a we lot have of an, things. I, I think we have an interest in preventing these other more like darker hell-like scenarios that we're talking about in the future that start to apply to humans, then we probably have an interest in starting to push back against this stuff for other beings uh, that are simpler in nature at, right at the beginning. I right, would think. or at least give those that are conscious some way out, at least. Yeah. Yeah, whether that gets granted to these beings or not is, I think, a, a huge question and not at all settled. Uh, and they'll probably, I would think, have to fight for it. <laughs> um <laughs> Or, or agitate for it in some way. Now, here's another way you might end up in one of these situations that I think is probably not very likely, although, you know, arguably being used as a research subject isn't necessarily that likely either. But, uh, you know, computers lock up and they get into, you know, infinite loops and stuff. And uh, I don't know, maybe this is easier to imagine if you say you're on like a deep space mission. Right. Right. Which is a situation where you would actually use some of this technology, right? Because like right. sending an actual like physical human, physical body, human out there, right. not a you good know, idea. Yes, they they may or may not be able to survive that, and so this may be like one of the best uses of you know software beings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Space if exploration. If something goes wrong, and the software being you know, just gets into, uh, like, starts losing its mind or gets into some situation where it can't access its own kill switch, right? Right. It just, through sheer malfunctioning, could end up in this type of situation. Right, right. Yeah, you'd want to try to make sure it had the ability to terminate itself or at least shut itself down in the event of too much trauma, but it's possible that that would not work for whatever reason. It would malfunction or be defeated, and in that case, sure, you could have a computer going slowly you know, insane in the deep reaches of space. And I, I think there's probably a physical version of this too, where like if you had some kind of like life support system that was keeping you alive indefinitely, right? If you had some technology that was doing that, but that you couldn't... Uh, it's really hard to imagine this idea without somebody doing it to you. It's true. It may, maybe a way It's possible, this but it just seems like pretty unlikely unless somebody's like strapping you down administering the nanobots and then whipping you or whatever maybe a way that this would be done to you though might be rather than through punishment would be through say anti-suicide laws right well like, that's a good point is like that right to death stuff i think kind of goes hand in hand with uh the desire to live forever because giving people the option to continue living is very different from society saying, for example, which I could imagine happening, uh, human beings are too valuable a store of information to let them die. Since we have the technology, uh, no, it's now illegal to die. And um, if you die either on accident or on purpose, we're going to revive you. So at that point, your, your virtual or not your, your very real hell ends up just being, hey, I'm a depressed person or I'm not happy with my life and I would like to die and yeah, maybe I've already been alive 200 years. Yeah. But like society has set it up so that we don't allow people to 
to yeah. pass on. You could imagine a society in which, for whatever reason, they have these nanobots that defeat you know aging, but they don't have sufficient brain scanning technology to save everybody's brains yet, and they just don't want to lose any of that valuable data. You know, um, maybe they're holding out until such time. And also, people just frown upon suicide. Oh yeah, and there's absolutely lots of cultural stigma against suicide. Um, and uh, I'm not necessarily against the cultural stigma. I think we should discourage folks from committing suicide because they're valuable. Um, everyone is. But at the same time, I think it's important to protect the, the right to die in any society where, uh, where we're talking about living indefinitely. You um, have to have scenarios in which people can rationally make that choice right especially if whatever for whatever reason they're feeling tortured you know i mean that can be because of malfunctions in their brain like you want to call it depression or whatever or it could be because you know somebody's strapped in the to the table and is physically torturing them um they should be able to tell their nanobot healing system to stop you know i think haven't they dealt with this in like x-men i feel like uh you know, there's some X-Men comic where, like, Wolverine gets strapped down and just, like, tortured endlessly. Oh, because he's got those, like... Because he's got the healing powers. Yeah, I mean, exactly. it's pretty much the same thing when we're talking about, you know, having, like, a sort of far future nanobot repair system in your, you know, suffuse throughout your body. It's kind of similar to, like, the rapid healing powers that they depict in Or just that classic X-Men. myth uh, with the guy who oh, gets... Prometheus, his, right. His, like, yeah, it's Prometheus, Prometheus, right, who gets his, you know, stomach eaten on the rock. Right. Which, you know, it's kind of convenient that it's Prometheus, too, because he's the, he's the one who stole technology he's from being, the gods. Right, he's being punished for giving a fire to, to man. So, yeah, you could definitely imagine a modern-day Prometheus. Perhaps he uh, is the guy who leaks the uh, previously singleton AI code, thereby uh, preventing a foom scenario and uh, causing a distributed uh, intelligence explosion. And then the uh, initial singleton... Uh, gets a hold of him, straps him to a rock, uh, uh, feeds him with the nanobot uh, uh, eternal life serum, and then proceeds to uh, uh, chop his uh, belly open, and you've got yourself a very... I think it was like uh, a bird in the original myth. Yeah, it's a vulture that eats him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, but you've got yourself a very uh, mythologically um, resonant uh, short story there. You know, I mean, you can definitely imagine a a modern-day Prometheus of that kind being punished eternally or just even more allegorically the fact that i think like this technology of life extension i think again people like to talk about the downsides and a lot of times those arguments i don't buy right well a lot of this is one of the ones that i kind of would accept i think i think you know we have to think of these very marginal scenarios to imagine it being used against people fortunately like these scenarios all sound a little far-fetched but, uh, right, but it's horrible enough that it warrants some yeah. serious consideration because uh, it's not just... I think the reason we don't buy a lot of these other arguments is that they're really just rationalizations from the past that kind of melt away once the technological reality changes. Oh, you know, I'd get bored or... Uh, I saw one recently, Why I Want to Die at 75. It was like a post on the internet that got some traction. And the whole argument was just because your late life is not worth living. It's because the health span, you know, of our current persons uh ends around 75 and then you start to get more health problems but if you extend the health span another 50 years then the argument changes then that argument it melts away and right exactly so it's it just matters how long can you be healthy for i think it's totally rational to say if i only want to live when i can move my body around and take care of myself i totally understand somebody who makes that choice but um you have to be ready to uh readjust the number of years that you're going to have able to do those things um, so, 
Yeah, I don't know. I think the these arguments against living forever are oftentimes just based on our current justifications, but this is different because this is uh, something that didn't really used to be possible, even though we used it as a boogeyman in our culture. Uh, the fact is that uh, no matter how bad torture was in the past, you would die eventually, and it would stop. And in the future, if you are able to live forever, you could be, you know, you could be tortured forever. It's real. So basically, to sum up, we'd like to get rid of death, but the one aspect of death maybe we should keep is the escape hatch part. Maybe that's the right. one, the one part of death that has kind of a purpose that we should that we should keep around while getting rid of the, all the other. Right. Well, if we get to a point where we're basically downsides. just architecting our own reality because we have that much technological control, then yeah, an ideal situation might be one in which the conscious, rational individual has a kind of poison pill, a kind of, you know, theoretical, abstract version of the cyanide tooth, where if it ever gets too bad, you can exit. Right. And, oh, to take this even further out into crazy town, um, you and I have talked about uh, in a future simulated, uh, sort of many simulated worlds reality, where you can hop from one simulated reality to another, uh, you might have... Uh, extreme pain or death be a sort of escape hatch from the particular world you're in. So like maybe instead of being able to, you know, you can't be tortured forever. You're in this world. If you get tortured too much, you die there, but you pop back out into the, you know, world selecting world and continue right. from I there. guess I, I can make that a little broader for a second by talking about the, a future society that, you know, existed in, in these virtual environments would want to preserve individual autonomy to where you could choose your surroundings like you would want to have i guess a for lack of a better term like a home world that you could return to at any point uh that you had full independent control over mm. uh rather than having that ultimately be controlled by a third party interesting uh that could then dictate your environment so this is, yeah, this is getting very abstract, but I think, like, this is kind of just extending the principles that, like, sort of Cory Doctorow is fighting for when he talks about, like, you know, if we're putting computers in our bodies or in our homes or in our cars, like, who owns and controls the software running those computers? Who has access to modify it? And anyway, in a future of virtual worlds, I mean, you want total control over your own environment, which maybe means that you have to have a little zone or environment of your own that you know, under the government of this society is deemed to be purely yours and you can always vacate wherever you are and return there. And then when you're there, you have total control over that region. Right. And as far as, you know, literalizing um, abstract concepts from religion goes, that sounds like it might be a kind of version of heaven, kind of a place you go in between lives that is free of uh, externally imposed uh, obstacles. It's not necessarily harps and white wings, but there's like a kind of safety and oneness there since you're the only being in that world or you something. You think of it as heaven. I mean, I think it's sort of as like a safe zone. Yeah. But, uh, well, but like a sure. pre and post life limbo, you know? Yeah. Um, which is uh, a, a very appealing concept. I mean, you see that dramatized in a lot of stories and things like that. I think it's appealing to think of people's essential selves sort of outside of this world and in some idealized space. So that's an interesting way to sort of create that space. Um, so, so anyways, I think before we wrap up today, we have like one more idea that we want to talk about, which is a, uh, some people on the internet we think feel this, that is this a, idea requires a warning. <laughs> yes. Okay, so warning, you may not want 
if you're the kind of person who gets very worked up about potentially terrible word problem-y sort of outcomes, you might want to just skip this part of the podcast. Maybe a better way to say this is there are people on the internet now who this idea has caused psychological pain to. Yes, and it who, has harmed them. And who wish that they had never heard this idea. Neither of us are, are one of these people. And so we're going to tell you about the idea, but we want you to know we don't want to harm you. So if you feel that you are at risk of being harmed, you should stop listening literally right now. I and then this, you will never have heard of it. <laughs> Except I think this intro is probably ensuring that our audience is going to keep listening. Well, because if I heard it. this, I'd be like, now I really have to know. You really, if you keep listening, it's at your own risk. And, you know, uh, you can't become upset with us. But we're going to tell you about something uh, called Rocco's Basilisk. Okay, so now we've named it. Now you're stuck. You've got to listen to is what it. Is it Rocco or Rocco? I don't know. I've been saying Rocco. But it's spelled R O K O, correct? Uh, yeah. Okay, so it's, if you wanted to look this up, it's, it's on the internet. So okay. I'm just gonna say it the way I, I want, but uh, you could be correct. So this is a proposition that uh, surfaced originally on the less wrong uh, forums and has been banned uh, from discussion there. So it's discussed elsewhere. And the proposition says that an all-powerful and artificial intelligence uh, from the future that is friendly may retroactively punish those people who did not assist in bringing about its existence to the fullest possible degree. And uh, in that sense, it, it's similar to Pascal's Wager or other things of this type. Perhaps we should review Pascal's Wager Pascal's really Wager is just the idea that um, it, there might be a god, so you may as well believe in one because it doesn't hurt you. Am I explaining this correctly? I think it doesn't hurt you. If, if you want to avoid wrong. this eternal hell, right. uh, even if it doesn't exist, that outcome is so terrible you might as well just, just take the bet and believe in God anyways. That's right. Pascal's wager. He's saying that it's the better bet, even if it's the less likely bet, because um, there's no penalty to being wrong. And this is a similar type of argument, uh, but what they're suggesting is that uh, this future AI will resurrect a simulated copy of you, deducted from pr first principles, and will torture that simulation indefinitely in order to retroactively encourage you now in our present time to put all of your effort and money and um and power into uh making this ai come to fruition so on the surface of it it seems probably pretty silly seems a little bit like a time travel problem where uh how could its actions in the future possibly affect the past but the proposition is made uh in detail using uh, certain chains of logic that are popular on the less wrong site and among rationalists and it particularly makes use of uh, timeless decision theory which is a decision theory that Yudkowsky uh came up with to try to uh get around certain problems in more traditional decision theories now there's a lot to this thing, and it might not make a lot of sense to you. So I guess um, let's just have a discussion about it. So is, okay, what, is, are your, what are your questions about it? Or Right, because Ted's done a little more reading on this than I have. So is, is part of the argument, I, I think, and correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong, is that like every day that goes by right now that we don't have this friendly AI god right. around to fix things, yes. uh, people are dying, yes. people are suffering, people are getting cancer, wars are happening. Yes. Animals are dying, et cetera, et cetera. Right. The world is highly imperfect, and this friendly artificial superintelligence will make it perfect. And therefore, we are sacrificing every day. So the extreme utilitarian perspective would say that every second that we spend in this sort of pre-friendly AI awful world where people are dying and suffering right. 
uh, is to be avoided, and you would be willing to expend sort of great on, resources on balance, right. perhaps do some things that might seem not so friendly, such as torture people, if you thought that that were to quicken the time it would take to get to this more friendly outcome ultimately. Right. It's claimed that it's a moral imperative because of the horrible problems in the world that could be solved by this in- intelligence. It's a moral imperative to make the super intelligence as quickly as possible. For the same reason that you w- might sacrifice a hundred people to save a million people. Right. You might torture a hundred people to save to, all future people. To basically. make sure that all future people more quickly get to this place, this paradise that it is possible it, once you have a friendly AI. Correct. So really the goal of, of this friendly AI is to exist and to exist sooner rather than later. Right. And to incentivize people to help it exist by using, as we've discussed earlier in the podcast, the most persuasive argument in existence, which right. is to threaten someone with eternal suffering. It's the worst possible thing. So it says it, this is so important and uh, so clearly the right choice that I will threaten the worst possible thing in order to uh, hasten it. Okay, that's what I thought. So yeah. now that it's still, the cause and effect still gives my brain problems because it's, you know what I mean? Like, well, so there's two issues now here, at uh, least. <laughs> there's many issues. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, one issue is you still have to buy um, in order for this to make sense. And they, uh, they argue this on the less wrong communities. You have to buy that the simulation of you, that it's going to... Um, resurrect and torture in the future is functionally you and that you now should care about what that thing in the future that is indistinguishable from you onto you know out from outside of you is feeling and right so when it's torturing it's not actually torturing you it's torturing a copy of you of course or at least that would be our argument of course because obviously most of us will not be copyable directly so it will be simulating us and in the original proposition, they suggest the simulations will come from first principles. So you have to buy that you can simulate a person based on, you know, ephemera and principles and data. And I'm not sure that that's true, but maybe it is. And then once you're simulating that person, that that person is meaningfully and subjectively you. And I don't buy that at all. To me, that's insane. And I definitely buy this instant twin, which is the opposite that's the the thing that they don't buy this you know which is that the second your clone is created it starts diverging from you and the only way to prevent that is to have a fully connected hive existence where we're all part of the ted hive and we're all having the same experience all at once by being uh interconnected so that's called instant twin so, so uh, this is it i, I like so giving th- names to this because it kind of helps discuss this issue which has come up before on the podcast sure. so, so if simulations of you are you then is there a name for that then um I don't have a name for that, but... Um, but there's two competing, competing philosophical views here, which is that the simulations of you are you, right. in some sense, and then there's this instant twin where it's just a, a branching copy, but it's right. not in any way the same being. Right, where it's... Right, exactly. Where, the, where the, a new subjective experience is created when the new, quote-unquote, you is created, and while there might be meaningful similarities between you and your instant twin, you are fundamentally different beings in the universe, is a different view from um, this idea that uh, because from outside of you, it can't be determined which is the original and which is the copy, therefore, they're actually the same. 
But I have a couple of problems with that. One is that even if you can't distinguish, I'm not sure that that matters. And then secondly, you would obviously be able to distinguish in the in the case that we're talking about because we're talking about one in which the the original exists in a different time frame than the copy. And therefore, there's an extremely easy way to distinguish them. Oh, yeah. And, by something, co- by time frame. and something that you brought up earlier, which is that you remember when we were talking about how copy Ted would cave under torture exactly. more quickly because copy Ted Knows has a definite life right. and, no, like, and has all these other properties. And is like, you can actually torture copy Ted indefinitely, but you can't torture regular Ted indefinitely, which is a fundamental physical Right, which is going to give difference. me, right, it's going to make me rationally pick different choices because I will know that under certain circumstances, your torture will fail and I'll pass out or die. And he won't know that, or he'll know that the opposite of that is true. So he'll, he'll make different decisions. So part of the reason that you and I aren't concerned about this argument is because even if you accept all the rest of the chain of reasoning that gets you there, yeah. which I'm not sure we do, is the fact that if a copy of me gets tortured in the future, abstractly, that sort of bothers me. That sort of feels icky. I don't like that. I would rather that not be the case. But at the same time, I also kind of don't care. <laughs> I strongly don't care. Yeah. I mean, really, other than... Because it's not me. Other than my privacy, which I'm worried about, because I do definitely see from the Robin Hansen point of view that that Ted is going to be a leaky Ted, <laughs> you know. Um, other than my privacy, uh, which I don't, you know, which as we've talked about before, I don't think I can protect really anyway. Um, I don't see any reason to to worry about the torture that somebody does to a non-me that's like me in the future. So that's a big, big place for me where Rocco's Bacillus just seems to break down. But if you buy, as some people on Less Wrong do, that... Um, these clones of you are somehow also you because they are an instantiation of the pattern that is you and they're indistinguishable from the original you. Uh, That's the reasoning. Then, okay, then you would be worried that it would be the same as you experiencing that torture in the future. And if that is true, then you can get stuck in this thing because of uh, what they call a causal trade, which is the idea that if you can trade places with someone else, so if you buy the idea that they're you, then you could meaningfully trade places with them, and therefore you should make the decision as if you were, essentially. And there's a whole chain of logic that goes behind that. Well, and also I would say now you're on the hook, listener, Uh, (laughs) because now you know about this. So now you're, uh, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, you're obligated to... You know, drop your current life pursuits. Uh, well, actually, and this start is- donating your time and your resources, or at least a, the portion of them that you think you can afford to donate to creating this friendly AI. Because otherwise, it will remember that you knew you were exposed to this idea, and yet you did not act on it. Right? Isn't that right. The, why people didn't want to hear about right. this? Right. So what you're dramatizing right now is exactly what caused the original kerfluffle. Because the first guy who mentioned this, this Rocco or Rocco character on the less wrong forums uh then followed it up by basically saying a version of what john just said and uh you can look up the specific paragraph um on the rational wiki but uh he said essentially the same thing that what makes this idea even worse now that i think about it is that the fact that i've thought about it uh, makes me even more culpable and therefore makes me even more likely to be tortured and again i think that's a huge leap because if this thing really exists and it really is torturing everyone who didn't call it into existence, it seems like it would be an irrational waste of its resources to determine which people are really guilty because they knew about it versus which people were just ignorant, which is, I guess, just as bad because they were working just as hard to not make this thing happen. 
Um, so I don't really see how hearing about Roko's Basilisk actually makes you any more culpable than just not knowing about it and doing nothing. Well, and for this blackmail proposal to be most effective, it has to be shared with a lot of people. Right. And if it's shared with a lot of people, and inevitably a lot of them don't act on it, then now this... To, in order to follow through with its original threat, now this so-called friendly AI starts having to torture so many people on the planet. Like basically a majority that of people. That it's basically like undermined its original goal, which was to create paradise, right? I mean, if, if we're still defining it as friendly here, which is becoming right, a right. stretch. And it definitely needs to take into consideration... Um, right. I mean, it'd be one thing if there was one person in the world who was like working really, really hard to prevent any AI from happening, right? And then the AI happens and it's fixing the world and it decides, okay, this one person I'm going to torture, you know, just as a sort of uh, whatever. To, an object lesson. As an object lesson and also as a, pre, you know, to satisfy some precondition that I previously, you know, committed to. Because um, they reached some ridiculously high threshold of fighting AI or something. But if, yeah, exactly. If you're, um, if most people in the world are not involved in the creation of AI, which is a reasonable assumption, and if, then AI is created in and that context. And if enough of them knew about Rocco's Basilisk, or Rocco's Basilisk, because it was disseminated widely enough, which would be the whole point of the idea. If you don't disseminate the idea, then the idea has no power, right? Right, right, right. Well, right. Okay. So if yeah. enough people know about it, and enough people just by virtue of being normal people are not directly involved in AI development, right. then you're setting a really low bar for torture. <laughs> exactly. You're, you're basically setting it up such that pretty much everybody has to be tortured, which again, just seems like not resource efficient for this thing that supposedly is a friendly AI that first wants to make everything perfect and then is looking at the moral imperative of existing as soon as possible. But also, I don't understand at, at a more fundamental level how this cause and effect thing is supposed to work, right? Right. Okay, so this is where we were just about to kind of okay. getting into that, right? It's just, isn't this just time travel? Isn't this just a variation on that Ray Bradbury story that I always talk about but i can never remember the name of toynbee convector yeah let me let me summarize this really quickly because this yeah. is a cool story great story so in the toynbee convector a man comes back from the future and he has a lot of photos and blueprints of this amazing utopian society in the future and he comes back to a present that's feeling particularly down and depressed where things are bleak and nobody has any hope and he shows them these photos and plans from the future and all of a sudden people realize, oh, wow, like, you know, if we just stick it out, the future is going to be wonderful. And he's, and that's what he tells them. And so, you know, society unfolds. And then about, you know, 40 years later, this utopian society has come to fruition and exists exactly as this guy described it, at which point this guy reveals that he made the whole thing up and that, you know, essentially he just gave them the sort of, you know, positive mindset that they needed to self-fulfill their own prophecy. Right. And that does feel a bit like a positive version of, of this Basilisk idea where it's just like a negative self-fulfilling prophecy and the telling of the story now is like the inception point where it then causes all these people to uh, potentially create this supposedly friendly AI out of that, torture torture, that tortures people out of fear. It's like a religion. It's like a new it, create the AI religion right. that works just like Christianity I mean, works. It's, it's a bit like a horror movie setup. You know, it's like I, you have, you know, you hear this story. If you hear the story, you have to create the machine. Otherwise the machine will destroy you. Then you go and you create the machine and then the machine destroys everyone else. And But it's the same for certain versions of Christianity, right? Because like there are times when you say like, okay, like if a infant dies, does it go to hell? And 
depending on what Christian you talk to, some of them might say, yeah, they, they didn't because they didn't really know any better to make any decision. Yeah, but a Catholic will tell you, right, yeah, well, so that they had like, original sin. Like, I'm born with it. It, right? depend, it depends who you talk to, right? right? But it's a lot of the same issues. Like, yeah. It's like, like, you know, just knowing about God and Jesus, like, require you to, like, you know, act or else you'll be punished with hell. This feels very religious. Right, right. Well, and it's very similar to um, original sin because, yeah, the question is, it's very much about whether you know about it or whether you're sort of born with that Except knowledge. the religious argument makes more sense because under the religious argument, God exists now and has always existed and can be masterminding this thing. But in, right. the, in, the, in Rocco's Basilisk... You're required to invent the God. The God does not... E- to punish you. Does not <laughs> exist yet. Yes. So... Here's what I'm thinking. What happens is this thing becomes created, right? Once it's become created, why does it need to honor something that it wasn't around for? Okay, so the answer is that to like- in the thing, I mean, and this is just their, this is their argumentation of it. And I think largely what this thing looks like, if you were, if you were just looking at this objectively, I think you would guess that this was like a troll meant to break down all of the self-important logic on less wrong, you know, but I don't actually think it is. I think everybody took it seriously, but um, you know, what they argue is that because of this timeless decision theory, the way that this timeless decision theory works is that you game a system of near perfect human behavioral prediction by strongly pre-committing to an outcome. So the answer is you have to, honor it because you strongly pre-committed to it and it's it's a you know it's circular it, it that is the the strong pre-commitment is the power of that decision theory and so that's their that's their answer for that i find that somewhat unsatisfying but that's the answer that i found for that yeah i mean i still i still don't buy it maybe we've spent enough time on it given that we don't buy it but it is interesting uh well, and so it, I'm, yeah, and I feel like I should just finish the story okay, here, which is like, okay, so this was promote, this was uh, discussed on Less Wrong, and immediately after it came out, Eliezer uh, Yudkasker, who who is like sort of the the lord of that uh, uh, domain, the lord of that realm, yeah, he he freaked out about it, um, mostly I think because he was afraid it was causing people psychological harm. I, I don't think he actually bought it, and he's gone on to explain why he doesn't. But he banned it, and in it, you know, it's like a classic example of Streisand effect. So, of course, it's become this thing that gets talked about a lot. And I think people get really worried about it because it does feel like this logical trap. But I would encourage you not to be too worried about it because I think it requires a lot of very dodgy uh, assumptions to be right in order to be something you'd need to worry about. And I think just regular old existential risks, like accidentally unfriendly AI, are a much bigger concern that you should spend your time worrying about. And, you know, the issue that we started the podcast with, which is just right. the notion of... The right to die and... Uh, yeah, indefinite suffering to begin with could still become a reality, not because of some weird self-fulfilling friendly AI possibility, but because because of humans being jerks to each other, as has often been the case throughout history. Right. Or because, or because of because some of other as situation. simple as yeah. cultural... Um, lack of tolerance for suicide sure and that could lead to you know a a very real kind of eternal torture if all we're doing is keeping alive depressed people who want to die so anyways it's been a darker episode uh this will be the last time we talk about torture for a while sorry everybody (laughs) yeah this is a really intense one i'm gonna go you know uh clean up um i feel terrible but uh thanks for listening and next week we'll be back with something that hopefully won't be quite 
so intense. Possibly about something happy like sharing. Yeah, I think we will talk about yeah. sharing next week. We'll, we'll make it sunnier. All right, thanks All right. for listening. Yes. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>